0: Please follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL, M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Again, anybody uses that code, it is unique for all new users. Check it out. Once again, thank you so much to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode.
1: Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors.
0: When we switched to remote podcasting six years ago, it was a headache. Multiple pieces of software, inconsistent sound quality, and honestly, nearly impossible to bring in guests, let alone record videos. Then we discovered Zencaster. Zencaster gives us studio quality recording, including video up to 4K, and distributed to podcast players that support it. We've consolidated our podcasting efforts, doing everything from recording to publishing in a single platform, and now having guests on. Zencaster is about making the podcasting experience as easy as possible, including local recording, automatic post-production, which we love, and no outside software needed to record, publish an episode. I honestly cannot imagine recording both without Zencaster. So if you're interested, go to Zencaster.com and use our code VGA. You'll get 30% off your first three months of Zencaster Professional. We want you to have the same easy experience we do for all our podcasting and content needs time to share your story.
2: Anonymous, the podcast about board gamers and the insane fun we have at the table together. This is Chris.
0: And this is Anthony.
2: And this is episode 391, Top 10 Rulebooks of All Time. We'd like to thank all our Patreon backers for helping us bring you a brand new episode. All right, friends, we are back and we are talking about some of the most happy times in the world. You know it. I know it. You get a game to the table. You pop off the top. You take a look at the rule book, and you know what? It's actually understandable.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, who knew that was possible? I, I did know. not know. That could be a thing.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Yes, our episode feature will be the 10 best rule books of all time. And again, if you've ever taught a game or even just try to learn a game on your own without jumping over to YouTube or somewhere else, you know how precious and valuable this wonderful technical writing that's been done so that we can actually play the games that we love to play and not have to search errata and board game geek around the clock trying to figure out how a certain card or a certain action takes place. Or halfway through the game, realize you're playing it wrong. And therefore, it's some wacky variant that you created unintentionally. So all of these Franks <laughs> Frankenstein kind of, you know, rule books and just, I mean, there's every kind of bad. This episode is about every kind of good. So we will heap praise on top of praise of all of these wonderful rule books. And again, you should play these games because you'll actually be able to play them. All right. So with that said, Anthony, obviously, there's so much to talk about because we are talking about the best thing to talk about. And then, of course, that is board gaming. But before we get into all that kind of fun stuff, let's talk about what our listeners are talking about. What's our question of the week?
0: All right. Yeah. So we're, we're talking about best rule books this week. And uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about the worst rule books.
2: Oh, those, yeah. Uh, we should, we're should. we not supposed to use those names, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. No, no good. Um, so I figured why not flip it around and confuse everybody? Uh, including ourselves, and we'll ask people what their worst rulebook is, because we we have not done that yet. <laughs> um, so the listeners had many, many, many bad rulebooks to share. <laughs> no. Shocking. Yeah, no, I mean, there's a lot of bad ones out there. Um, so uh, again, we have multiple references to Mage Knight, which is funny because going through when we talk about the best rulebooks and the worst rulebooks, a lot of Shavatul always ends up on both lists yes some people love his rule books and some people hate them mm-hmm. uh i i get it on the mage knight one we made it our number 10 before because it is split up across multiple rule books which yes we're both on record as hating I hate that <laughs> uh like i know people like the fantasy flight thing sometimes i don't i think it's stupid stop doing it yes please <laughs> and it's very small text and oh it's a very complex game as yes. is, with multiple ways to play it. So like having like a lot of Shavalt's fun, goofy voice mixed in there. I'm just, like, mm-hmm. just kind of hard to find the rules. Mm-hmm. So, I get that. I agree. <laughs> uh, other ones though, because there were other ones mentioned. We have Snowdonia scenario book. Larry mentions because it's full of errors. Apparently <laughs> um, I have the master set for Snowdonia and I played it once. I've never played it again because There are, I can't remember how many cards are in there that have errata or errors on them, but Mm. the sheer volume of them and the amount of work that would require for me to print the stuff out and fix them, I'm just never going to do it. So it's a mess. Like, it was just, a, you know, a a proofing mess, really. Mm. But uh, I guess the rulebook has the same problems. Uh, Michael mentions Kemet, Blood and Sand, which, yes, that was a surprisingly terrible rulebook, considering... It's the second edition of that game well wow. the actual rules themselves are great it integrates expansions effectively and mm-hmm. cleans a lot of stuff up but then when they went to write those rules down they did a pretty bad job of it there's a lot of things that are very ambiguous some things that are missing entirely uh, my first two or three plays of that game were not I mean they're fun the game is fun but like it spent a lot of time digging through the rule book and board game geek forums trying to find answers. Because they didn't put enough information in the rules. <laughs>
2: so Yeah, the only thing worse than that rule book was the previous rule book. I think it was like their uh, yeah. 1.5 version. Yeah, yeah. Where they, they had that major kind of expansion where they had like that dark temple sideboard. And it was just like, here's more things. It doesn't really work together, but more things. And you're just like, can you explain the more things? They're like, no. <laughs> right, right.
0: Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's such a mess. Uh, all right, so over on Twitter, uh, definitely a board game podcast said Batman Gotham City Chronicles. This was mm. also on our list, all the way up at number three. Actually, it's a terrible rule book. Um, <laughs> so overly long, it's same number of icons, terrible layout, illogical ordering. Uh, <laughs> they said if there's a mistake, that rule book made it. Wow. Yep, I agree. And they still don't have a second edition rule book. Like, I mean, it's coming, but. How, how long has that game been out now? Three, four years? Like, come on. <laughs> Fix the rule book. Uh, Joe on Twitter mentions Magic Realm, which mm-hmm. is always the first game everybody mentions when we ask about out-of-print games, <laughs> because this game's been out-of-print forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he And I have not read this rule book because I've never seen a copy of the game, but he mentions it's incredibly hard to read, poorly organized, long, confusing, and just generally a mess. So... I think anytime you can find a game that has a rule book written by the fans on Board Game Geek, that's sure. the most popular download, it's probably a sign that the rulebook's no good.
2: Yeah, or sometimes when fans put up like a player's information card mm. or an information sheet because the rule book, you just can't chop through all of it. And it's like, here's a sheet. I am not a professional board game designer, but somehow I was able to make something readable and usable. So... Yay, love those people, but yeah, that's certainly a red flag.
0: Yeah, no, it's no good. Um, we have Anima Gates of Memory, uh, which I've not played, but Andrew mentions that the rulebook is filled with uh, charts. So to make an attack, you have to reference a chart. For the defense, you have to reference another chart, and every success you make requires you to recalculate both charts. So. That sounds terrible. <laughs> I don't want to do that. Charts are bad, y'all. Um, so yeah, a bunch of stuff we missed. Uh I I mean there there are a lot of bad rule books out there. We went over why. Um today we're gonna talk about some of the good ones and we'll try to bring some positivity and discuss why some rule books actually work where others don't.
2: Yeah, I just want to add an honorable or dishonorable mention in this case for rule books that are unwieldy like somehow or sometimes they feel like hey the game box is this large giant square let's make the rule book the same size Mm. as the box so as you're trying to read through the rule book at the game table because you have to look something up you have this this giant fold out kind of game sheet or giant book with these huge pages and you're trying to find information it's like you would, never, you would never buy a book like this. It just wouldn't be, it's like, it's, it's, it's the worst. It's like a coffee table book. It's like these giant things. Like, look all the pictures. I'm like, no, love the pictures. If you want to give us one shot with how the game looks set up, love that. But beyond that, I need to be able to hold something like an eight and a half by 11 rule book. Yeah. If you make anything bigger than that, you're just messing with me. And I'm not cool with that.
0: Those big floppy rule books are terrible
2: yeah I mean the the print quality, like you said, is sometimes it's too small times sometimes it's blurry, sometimes they use fancy text or they use you know flavor text in there, but just big giant floppy not like thin magazine kind of quality paper, and it's just bending and wrinkling under your hands, and now you have the game set up, so you have to flip through this gigantic thing or you have to pass this gigantic thing around the table. it just doesn't work, it just doesn't I'm sorry like it's it's bad and You know, I think over time, I I think we've overly focused on upgrading the game components. And I think that we've made a tremendous tactical misdecision here because I think what we should have been asking for all along is better technical writing instead of like, instead of metal coins, hire somebody who has a writing degree to go through this and, and write it clearly so we don't have to go through 12 videos and 12 erratas and we have to go through, you know, just, I would just like somebody to have written a really well quality book. I will pay more for that than I will upgrade to pieces these days. Right.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a funny thing. Like, and all that other stuff is great, but the biggest possible sin you can make is run a Kickstarter. That's hundreds of dollars with all this bling. Mm. And then the rule looks terrible. Sure. Like Batman Gotham city. Like there's a reason it was number three on our list because when you spend that much money on a game and the rules are terrible, it's infuriating. Mm. So bad because you're like, I can't play this game that I spent all this money on. <laughs> like...
2: Yeah, and oftentimes too, when they when they do those Kickstarter campaigns and they have those stretch goals, and they're they're not incorporated into the rule book, so mm-hmm. now you have to go look at separate sheets of paper to see if you know those like special abilities or cards are listed there so like oh I, i'm not sure about this card okay cool well look at the rule book or the six other random pages that came with the game because that card could be a special bonus card or something like that
0: right yeah no it's there There are certain games for which i won't even look at the rule book i just go straight to board game geek and i'm like i don't know somebody's probably asked this question <laughs> because it seems like a thing that would come up and this book is terrible
2: yeah all right. Well, that's all the dishonorable stuff. We we have some wonderful honorable mentions and the best ones. So those games are definitely worth your time because, again, you'll be able to play them in a good turn and teach them, and people will love you for it. Yeah. <laughs> you'll have that, like, sweat anxiety as you try to remember where in a 20-page rule book is that one nuanced rule that your your table is having a problem with as you flip through the giant thing going... It's got to be here somewhere. It's got to be here somewhere. Did I read it online? Did I read it in errata? Was it on one of these separate pieces of sheets? Did I hear it from a friend? I don't know. Eh. Jeez. I mean, mean, come on. I mean, if people get Monopoly wrong or Uno wrong, how to play it, then yeah, we, we need a quality rule book for a game that takes three, four hours in some cases. Yes,
0: please. Please.
2: All right, everyone. So that's everything that's happening with you out there in the world. Thank you so much for hitting up all our social media so you can let us know what you're thinking about. Don't forget that these questions a week are always live and available for you on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and BoardGamersAnonymous.com. Don't worry, you hit us up, you email us, you reach out to us, we'll let everybody know all the great stuff that you're getting to the table. All right, Anthony. So that's everything that our friends are saying. Let's get on to the games that we want to get to the table. Let's talk about our acquisition disorders.
0: All right. So this is a game that dropped out of nowhere.
2: Uh, i saw that
0: like just popped up in my email i'm like oh cool i wonder when that's coming out oh it's coming out next week oh my gosh (laughs) uh star wars the clone wars and so like i saw this at first i'm like oh my gosh a new star wars board game and i was like jumping off the walls and then i saw on the bottom left corner it said a pandemic system game oh (laughs) okay i mean that's that's fine i guess um so uh, this is the same designer who did the Wrath of the Lich King, the World of mm-hmm. Warcraft version of Pandemic, which, by all accounts, is a fairly good implementation of that, mm-hmm. like both for the theme and for the pandemic system. And I've really enjoyed some of the pandemic system games, like oh yeah, Base Pandemic alone. You know, I could take it or leave it. It mm-hmm. feels like a mechanic more than a game. Mm-hmm. Um, but like Fall of Rome is really good. The uh, the one done by the Splatter Guys about flooding in Amsterdam that's really sure. good. There's a lot of really good games based on that system, mm-hmm. which is again, why it's a system. Yeah. right.
2: Defenders um, of the realm.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So star Wars.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Why not? And based <laughs> it on the clone wars, which makes perfect sense. Um, you've got basically you have a giant map of the system, mm-hmm. which, you know, looks almost a little rebellion ish, but small, which is kind of funny looking, but I don't know how else you illustrate the star Wars universe, I guess. Um, and then the, the droids, the Separatists, are spreading out. And as the Republic, mostly the Jedi, you have to go in there and clean it up. Pandemic style, right? So the, I'm sure there's a bunch of other mechanics that have been tweaked a little bit. But for the most part, like, you are using squad cards, dealing damage, pushing back those threats, trying to balance it all, while at the same time trying to win the war. Um, And I am all about this. You I mean, like... Yeah, I mean, like, it's... It's a it's a pandemic game. It's a Star Wars cash-in. It's not the Star Wars board game that I would want to see. There's a mm-hmm. lot of stuff I would love to see. We still don't have Mandalorian anything. That's crazy. Anything. Crazy. Uh, they literally just... I think it's coming out in two weeks. They have the Mandalorian and Grogu miniatures for Star Wars Legion. Mm-hmm. Finally. That's it. <laughs> That's all they've done. So, like, how is this all you've done? The show's been out for three years. People love it. What are you doing? So... Um so yeah, it's not the Star Wars IP stuff that I would like to see from Asthma Day. But it actually looks pretty good like all things considered and with the other pandemic game system games out there. Um and my son is super hyped for it cuz he loves the Clone Wars. Um so yeah, I'm going to pick this up. It seemingly was available uh from Target online mm-hmm. for like an hour or two before it sold out and when I looked before we recorded, it is available at some target stores, Sure, none within 30 miles of my house, but there are some in Pennsylvania right now that have it. So it's out in the wild. Um, It's releasing everywhere else, like just general retailers uh, at the end of next week, like October 7th. So I have pre-ordered it. It will come in by a normal means because I don't feel like trying to drive myself all over to different targets to get it. But I will pick this up. I will check it out because it's Star Wars. Pandemic's a good system. Um, the artwork in, you know, I was going to say Fantasy Flight Star Wars games, but they don't make them anymore. Asmodee Star Wars games uh, has always been very good. And the Clone Wars is ripe for board games. I would love to see more stuff in this setting. So, yeah, I'm all about this.
2: Yeah, I think the Warcraft one at Target is now, I think they're discounting it pretty heavily.
0: Yeah, yeah. It was 60 bucks. This is $60, too. Um, yeah.
2: I think Which it's too a, much for the too much for a mass market.
0: Yeah. It's, it's funny though. Cause you look at what's in the box and it's more than would be in a mass market game. There's a lot of stuff in there, mm-hmm. but the IP is mass market. So it's like mm-hmm. a weird in between. I don't think they sell as well as they want it to though. Like, I don't know why target keeps putting 60, $70 games on the shelf. People are not buying them.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Especially since target and a lot of those other big box stores will discount. So you will see this game on sale at some point. They will mass produce it. It will be on a holiday sale. I think Target typically runs like buy two, get one free kind of things from time to time or holiday, Black Friday kind of discounts. So I don't think you have to worry about this game selling out. But I think $60 just, again, for like a mass market kind of game is hard because I think the general public, usually when they're getting a Star Wars game, they're not thinking that this is like a great mechanical system to it. I think they're getting a Star Wars game for $60 that has like, you know, it's plastic miniatures. There's nothing super ornate about the game, but I'm glad they're doing this. I mean, I I guess this is the new dream for every designer out there. I mean, I think initially it was, you know, becoming the game that was in every friendly local game store. And then eventually the dream became getting the game out into the mass market. So like Barnes and Noble, I think was, you know, the mainstay of like the mass market for a very long time or other bookstores like that. And now I I guess it's the big box stores get those games out there and now I guess licensing your system. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Catan has done that. Catan had a Game of Thrones version that was again also a super expensive version. I think that also eventually dropped a little bit on that too. I think that price was was it 90? When that yeah, came out. Yeah, it up? was a
0: lot. Yeah, and it like it target, which is crazy.
2: That was crazy. Like <laughs> and it's just like why would you think that would be a thing people would pay for so no i'm i'm excited about this i did see this as well i read it i read the description and i'm like this is pandemic isn't it and they didn't use the words pandemic so i'm glad you i'm glad you noted that on the box but that was certainly uh certainly a thing and I, i guess we'll see a lot more of it it's a very good system so i'm glad that they're incorporating it here and there's a lot of the actual star wars characters miniatures in this in the game so yeah so I, I think that I think, you know, like you said, families and kids, I think will enjoy this and maybe they'll get into this and get into more deep, serious gaming.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The only thing I'll say that I'm disappointed in is that this seems to be replacing the, we, for a while there, we were getting an annual release based on a country, right? They would go to a country and sure. ask, you know, Paolo Mor- Mori in Italy, the splatter guys in mm-hmm. the Netherlands, you know, and then they would do a version based on, on their country. And it was, roughly correlated to where the pandemic world championship was being held, which is very cool. It was a very Mm -hmm. cool thing. And I think we got three or four games that way, all of which were good. And they seem to have stopped doing that. And now we're just slapping IPs on it. Mm. As long as the IP based game is good, I'm not too upset about that. But if they start getting like rushing them out and they're kind of messy, like if this star Wars game is not good Mm -hmm. and we could have gotten like, you know, pandemic Australia instead, Mm. I'll be kind of upset about that.
2: I'm also a little disappointed too, and I guess this is just the day and age of things. Like, you'll see, like, Funko Pops, for example, not just Funko's, but other Funko Pops, where it's like, hey, this new movie's coming out, but it's been spoiled because this company is releasing, you know, toys or whatever they're releasing in, in reference to this new material that's coming out. It still seems that maybe this is Asmo Day, maybe this is Fantasy Flight, or just how the IP works, is that we're getting stuff that's, you know, a little bit behind i'd like to see something more like more relevant like you said the mandalorian has been out for years now why not capture that i mean the clone wars has been out and done 15 different ways 20 different times now at this point right you know do Andor or do one of, do one of the other properties that you have upcoming that maybe no one knows about like build a game about that so yeah. when that series hits then you you get to drop a really amazing cool game about that thing at that time not Five ten years <laughs> after the fact.
0: I know. Well, that's I, I. I would almost blame Disney for that. They just don't want anybody to see what they're working on until it's already out. I was like, we didn't have any Baby Yoda toys until six months after that show was out.
2: I think the Marvel. I think what I'm thinking about is the Legos. Like, how many different things were spoiled for the for the Marvel movies?
0: Oh yeah, Marvel movies.
2: Yeah, yeah remember like Doctor Strange? That was a thing where it showed what was it the tentacle creature in there, and it showed the characters right. in there. So that was one of those kind of giveaways. And usually that information kind of bubbles up to the surface. Sure. So interesting. All right. Well, I want to talk about a game that just popped up on Kickstarter and I find it very funny and I thought, why not talk about it? It's called dungeon bra. (laughs) Dungeon bra is a comical deck crawler card game. You're on the most noble quest of all not to die. So, First thing that kind of caught my attention here was the artwork. It kind of has a mix of Munchkin meets Epic Spell Wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's cartoony, like almost like a Saturday morning kind of cartoon, but more adult swim kind yeah. of grotesque humor um, based in that kind of D&D legendary kind of series. I've always liked the humorous take on D&D. Like D&D goes way back and I have played it, you know, way back. And I really like the comical take on this. So this was pretty interesting. And then obviously when I took a look at the game, I'm like, oh, I, I know what this is. So basically what you're looking at here is, again, and I don't I haven't played it. This is just me talking about a Kickstarter. But it seems very Munchkin-esque. You get a character, one of your D&D-like classes to play. And your characters will have melee or have magic. So they'll have some special abilities to be able to do. They will be able to equip the characters with special weapons and magical staffs as the game goes on. And they'll also be able to pick up special additional abilities and people to help you along the way. So basically, you're doing Munchkin, right? You're building up your character with really cool stuff, really cool weapons. And then you're flipping over the deck and seeing what monster you're going to face. And then, of course, at that point, you do everything you can to kill the monster and hopefully, if you're able to do that, you get treasure. And the game ends whoever gets four treasures or whoever is the last person standing. So, again, it has a kind of D&D, tongue-in-cheek, smirking dagger, dagger um, epic spell wars kind of look and feel to it. And then you have a lot of, again, I guess in this case, it would be the Call of Cthulhu. That's this big, monstrous cat that you find at the end. Because I guess Cthulhu itself would not be enough of, you know, a little bit of a joke. So they went in the cat way here. So this is currently up on Kickstarter. It does have one of those really weird early bird specials. So unfortunately, probably by the time we get this out, the early bird special will be over. But you can pick this game up for about $20. If you want to pick up all the stuff, including the expansion, it's going to cost you about $30. But again, I think this is one of those games where you can have a lot of fun with probably more of a game experience. But again, I think those games do certainly have a place. And if it's making fun of a lot of those tried and true tropes that we've played with all along, this looks like a lot of fun. So Dungeon Bra, check it out, bro.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I love the aesthetic. I mean, the game does not sound interesting to me uh, based on the comparisons that you've made Mm -hmm. and my own gaming preference. But it's cool artwork and it's not reasonable price, which is nice. Yeah.
2: I'm I'm seriously, I'm I'm seriously take, you know, taking a real look at this. Like I said, I owned a lot of Munchkin because it was something that was easy to play with the family. This seems like something you wouldn't play with the family, it's just it's not straight out grotesque or something super objectionable, but it's something that definitely leans more towards the way. So this is something to play with friends, it plays two to four players, and you know, it could be a fun time. This is a game that's from a first-time designer as well. So it might be something to back, and again, Just like Pandemic, this seems to be somewhat of a tried-and-true system, and hopefully the mechanics avoid that kind of munchkin 12-hour kind of play where you're just knocking each other down 20 times. Right. All right, so that's everything for our acquisition disorders. Anthony, now let's get on to the games that did hit the table, and let's talk about our At the Table this week. We'll let everyone know if those games are a bind, they should run out and pick those games up. If those games are a play, and they should sit down and play them. If those games are dodged, they should avoid them. Or if those games are in fact the dread, dreaded, dreaded burn, bra, and you should just not even even consider it, not even close, not even a little bit. <laughs> so, what do you have up for this week?
0: All right, so uh, we've I've made fun of this game enough, so mm-hmm. I figured I had to get it and play it. So well, I there can you tell go. You if it's any good or not, <laughs> um,
2: <laughs> way to take one for the team, bro.
0: Yeah, Twilight Inscription is mm-hmm. a roll and write based in the Twilight Imperium universe. Uh, so. <laughs> It just see you laugh when I say it. I laugh
2: when you say it because it's literally the opposite of twilight Imperium, which is is like the complete opposite, right? The antithesis of all that.
0: Yeah. To be fair though, this is the biggest, longest roll and write I've ever played. So there you go. They've got that going for them,
2: (laughs) which is also the opposite of what a roll and write should be.
0: I know. (laughs) Uh, So here's the thing. It shouldn't work because of all that. Yes. It does kind of work though. Uh, Uh, All right, fine. It's, it's not, I don't know, Well, I'll get to like final thoughts in a minute, but first, here's how it works. So everybody gets four sheets, which is a lot, right? And so when you buy the game, it's 50 or $60, I don't remember what it is. It's a lot for a rolling right? but in the box come 32 sheets, and they're laminated, um, plus a, a 33rd sheet for Mechatol Rex, and two fairly large decks of cards. Um, you got these little chalk markers, which I've never seen before. So usually you get dry erase, which is terrible, and the pens are not very good, and you end up throwing them away like six weeks later. These are like orange chalk markers, because the board, the, the player mats are actually very dark. They're, you know, Twilight Imperium color. They're dark blue. Um, so this bright orange comes out. Uh, and it takes a little bit of work to clean, but it's very clear, and it doesn't smudge. So, I love the pens. Right? The pens get a buy. Um, but the game itself the way it works is you're going to create an event deck and this is how you kind of run the game effectively. So every round you're going to flip over the top event from the deck. It's going to have a certain number of die faces on it that you then get to activate. And so during that round, you will choose one of the four sheets and activate that sheet. And you only work in that sheet for that round. Now there's a bunch of rounds and I, I didn't count them up. Apologies, but it's something like 20, 25 rounds. So you, The game takes a bit of time, right? Because there's a bunch of rounds. Um, And so you'll go through and you'll mark up those freebies. And then you roll a handful of dice. There's three black dice that everybody gets to use. And then if you've unlocked one of the specialty dice on the sheet that you've activated, and there's one for each resource type, then you can also use that die. So you could have up to six dice per round. Probably you'll have three, maybe sometimes four or five. And all these different icons and they, they're going to correspond to I think it's materials, influence, and science or knowledge. I forget the words they use, but I call them red, blue, and green because that's how my brain works. Um, so these are going to let you do various things. So there are technologies on every sheet. Each sheet has like four, two available technologies that you can unlock by using three of the knowledge, the green ones. Um, and then the influence and the materials do a variety of things, depending on what the sheet is. So you have navigation is the first sheet, which is a little map of the galaxy. Um, You can draw lines between systems, and then you can circle systems to claim them. And when you claim them, you get the resource within them or the thing, right? So some of those are planets themselves, which when you circle a planet on the navigation sheet, you can then go over to your expansion sheet on a later turn and unlock a planet. There are six planets on the expansion sheet, and these have more icons on them. Um, There are also a bunch of different resources uh, shown on the navigation sheet, and these are going to correspond to your industrial sheet. So the industrial sheet has these rows of resources, which I don't remember what they're called. Again, these are all... A lot of different symbols are used in this game. Um, And it is a little bit much the first time through. Um, and so knowing what they're called doesn't really help (laughs) like, but there are three different roses, red and blue and yellow. And as you unlock those, you're going to unlock income for yourself. So there's trade good income that will then give you bonuses. And within each phase of the game, you could draw a production card from the event deck that will give you trade goods based on your income level. Um, and there are five phases of the game. So there's multiple production opportunities. Those give you trade goods. Those trade goods can be traded in for wild resources. So it just gives you more actions on your turn, is effectively all that does. Um, when you get over to the expansion sheet, again, you have planets. You unlock them. You can go through. And you again, you're marking off the same blue, red, and green symbols, materials, influence, and science. Um, when you complete a row or a column of those symbols, you unlock. Guess what? Another symbol. Uh, These symbols (laughs) correspond to a few different things. There are specialty symbols. These are like extra powerful ones that link to specific abilities on other sheets. So, for example, there's a couple of them that will directly link to the ability to build your Dreadnoughts and War Sun on the Warfare sheet, which we'll get to in a second. Um, And so those are good to have. You unlock those, you get a bunch of extra bonus stuff, right? There's also, uh, I forgot what they call it, a little speaker symbol, which will unlock votes. There's another uh, row in your industrial sheet. These will give you uh, votes in, uh, there's a, a political thing that happens during the events as well, once per round. And agendas will come out, as in Twilight Imperium, and you will vote on them. So based on the number of players, you'll vote yay or nay for the agenda, and something good or bad will happen, depending on... How people vote um and so you get votes as income when that happens and so that sheet makes you know that makes more or less sense right there's also a population chart which is just points so um and that's one of the weird things about the game i will say it's incongruous with the the original game it is kind of victory point focused um there's a lot of different victory point symbols throughout all four sheets and like the scores the score I got my first score was 62 points, which I was like, that seems like a lot. And I looked it up and it was on the lower end of. Okay. Uh, so you can get pretty high scores in the game, which is weird because twilight Imperium, you get points, but you get very few. It's a, it's a point race to 10, right? And that, that takes eight hours to get 10 points. So I was like, I don't know. It's a different kind of game almost. Um, The industrial sheet, you're kind of spreading out on a little map where you are using resources and then claiming other ones and unlocking various things. You get the idea. You're unlocking a lot of things that give you symbols that you can use in other places. The warfare one is probably the more interesting sheet because, again, you're spending symbols and resources, but you're then unlocking ships that you draw onto a grid. Uh, They're all each different shapes. And the grid will have all these different notes, nodes on there and each node that you cover by filling in a ship is going to give you one um, combat strength and you're fighting with the people to your left and your right. So that one actually makes sense. It's a little more tangible what you're doing and it's cool when you finally like unlock the big stuff. You're like, I built a war son. Yes, right? That's eight strength by itself. So you know, you can win without warfare like Twilight Imperium. You don't have to focus on all four of these at once, but the Warfare one, I think it's the one I had the most fun with because I could see what I was doing. Um, So you're going to go through this. You're going to do all 20-plus event cards. You're going to go through all the different uh, political cards that come up, the production cards that come up, the Warfare cards. Again, one per phase of the game. So you're going to fight. You don't have a choice. (laughs) Again, unlike Twilight Imperium, you don't have a choice. You are going to fight. And... If you win those fights, you get some really good bonus. If you lose them, you lose one victory point per person you lose to. So it's not really that big of a deal. Um, And then you'll go through. And then when that deck runs out, and you get the last Warfare card, you finish the turn, you count up your points, and you see who wins. Now, there are some other little flourishes in there that feel Twilight Imperium-ish. Like, on your navigation sheet, there's Mechatol Rex. And you can go there, and the first person to go there gets more points than the other people who go there. there is like some exploration locations. You can find relics. These are special cards that have like very powerful abilities on them, as well as victory points. Uh there's two that you can explore on your player sheet. There's wormholes that connect various things. Um some of the technologies are pretty interesting and reminiscent of um you know the, the original base game. And all those sheets that the game comes with can be asymmetrical as well. So there are eight different versions of each sheet. Um, Or you can play the B-side where they're all the same. So lots of variability, lots of different cards. It has all the races from Twilight Imperium. Each of them has its own starting power, and each has its own bonus power that you unlock. Um, I read; It took me like a half an hour just to read through all the cards to see what they all were, because I think we have like 23 different races now. So it definitely gave me a Twilight Imperium feel, and I enjoyed that. At the same time, there are those little bits that are incongruous because it would be like you can't take a giant 4x game that takes 10 hours and convert it perfectly into a different genre. And that's fine. I don't, that doesn't really bother me um, too much. But all the people saying like it's Twilight Imperium, but shorter, it's not. It's a different game, right? It's the same theme, but it's a different game. And it has some stuff that you might like from that. Uh, As a roll and write, I thought it was pretty good. It's a little long in the sense that I, I can't imagine I would play this super often because it takes an hour, hour and a half to play. Um, and people who don't love and rights anyways, are going to be like, I'm not an hour and a half. Are you crazy? So there's that. But the sheets do really integrate very effectively with one another. Uh, the, the voting mechanism is very interesting. There's a lot of agendas. You will only see four of them in a game. So you can cycle through a lot of those. There's a lot, a lot of replayability here, which is good considering how long it is. And the solo mode of the game is fine, right? Like it's, there's a, like a little track and it measures when certain things become unavailable and when they flip over and you can just kind of go through and play it on your own. And that took me 45 minutes, which I think is a pretty solid amount of time. So I wouldn't put this above Fleet, which is still my favorite Roll and Write. I, I think it's like the perfect mixture of complexity and still like simple fun. Like, I want these types of games to have a lot of things that chain into each other. So if you do things in the right order, you're like I did this now that unlocks this and that unlocks this. And now I can do this. And now I did that. That's fun in any Euro game and in a roll and write it's, it's very nice. Um, This game has a little bit of that, but mostly you're just building up different elements to balance each other out and trying to keep track of all the things you've unlocked. So there's a lot of tracking here and, I think maybe my mindset will change once I've played it more than the three or four times now that I've kind of tackled through it. But it's it's a lot, right? And so you can't sit down and play this with anybody who doesn't, A, like big, long games already. And it's not even that complex, but there's a lot going on. So they have to have that mindset of being able to track all that stuff. And B, they have to like roll and rights Because I think somebody who hates a roll-and-write is not going to be converted by this game. Um, there's no reason why they would be. Like you're rolling stuff, you're marking it down and there's not really any interaction other than the warfare and the agendas, which that is interactive for sure, but I don't think it does enough, right? Last thing I'll say is the box says it plays one to eight. I don't know what table you'd have to play this on to play eight people because the four sheets that you have are enormous. It's like each sheet is like an eight and a half by 11 sheet. So you have like this, two f- square foot chunk of real estate in front of you for your sheets if eight people were doing that you'd have to be on different tables you need a projector or something I don't know how this would happen It's like I can't imagine playing with more than three or four people but all that said I'm going to give Twilight Inscription a play it's a solid rule and write it's fun it was an interesting experience especially based on Twilight Imperium It it works somehow it works it's not a dumpster fire of a game which is what I was worried about but it also didn't, like, blow my socks off and change how I think of roll Rights or anything. Like, I'm not, like, clamoring for more 4X roll and because I think, I, I don't know. I think if you took almost any other 4X and tried to boil it down this way, it probably wouldn't work. But somehow this works in whatever form it is. You know, it's not a home run, but it's, it's a solid double. So Twilight Inscription, that's a play for me.
2: Yeah, I think for the cost of this game and for the legacy of TI4... The fact that this game works is just a miracle in and of itself. So I'm, I'm really glad to see that. For the length of time in this game, I would probably take that and invest it into a Ti4 game before I would do the roll and write. But I'm glad that this works.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's it's hard. Like I know some people are like, oh my gosh, I can play Twilight Imperium in two hours now. And I'm like, no, you can't. This is not Twilight Imperium. <laughs> it's it's the same theme. If you sure. really like the theme of Twilight Imperium, yeah. but you don't want to play a ten hour game, then yeah, this is great. But if you want that experience, that's not what this is at all. Yeah. Um, It's a 4X roll and write, which is apparently a genre now because there are two or three of them. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. Give it a shot if you like roll and writes. Probably track somebody down who has it first because don't spend $60 on this game until you know you're going to like it.
2: Yeah, I hear Like I'm going to keep
0: it. I like it enough.
2: That's great. Excellent. Well, I want to talk about a game that recently got to backers. It was a game from Renegade Games called My Father's Work. Now, this is a epic, and I mean epic, Victorian mad scientist game in which you play three generations of a family. You and all of the other players at the table that are competitors are members of this family that are reading through the journals of your previous ancestors and former mad scientists And you're picking up your, in this case, of course, your father's work. And you're continuing their, uh, I guess, depending on the story, it's creepy legacy. Let me start off by saying here that this game has a lot of content to it. It's a $100 game on Kickstarter, plus shipping and everything else. And there is three main kind of scenarios to play through. And each of those scenarios has multiple endings to it. So this will not be a full complete review of the game. I played through one of the scenarios and I'm going to give my impression on that. The other challenge to give a review here is that there is an endless number of spoilers and I'll explain why in a second. But because of that, I won't be giving you any spoilers. So you can listen to this review. You can make up your mind and whether you want to back the game or not, but I won't be spoiling any content of the game. So with that said, let's talk about my father's work. So first off, it's a hundred dollar Kickstarter backed game, and so you are going to get really nice components in the game. There is a number of different miniatures that you can play with, and basically you are putting one for you as the mad scientist, one for your spouse, one for your servant, and one for your Igor kind of character in the game. Now the miniatures are you know able to kind of lock into your own colors into the own sh- and specific shapes. So you can pick whatever character you want to represent you and the other characters in your family. Really love that aspect of the game. The miniatures are well detailed as well as all the components in the game. So you have really nice little shiny clear plastic cubes for knowledge. You have metal gears for all the mechanical work. And you have like screen printed animals and screen printed dead bodies, because again, very Frankenstein-esque as far as the game's concerned. The artwork in the game is great. The graphic design is nice and crisp, easy to read. Uh, The rule book is a little more challenging. Now, again, like I said, I'll get into a second why that is, because again, there's multiple scenarios and multiple pathways as far as the game will play with multiple endings. So a lot of stuff comes onto the board. So when you open up the scenario, you get a bunch of tokens. Now, I did not play the other two scenarios. So I can't speak to it. But the one I did play had some pieces in it and had an endless number of tokens to it that did come into play throughout the game. Now, beyond the, the you know the rulebook being able to tell you how to play the game, there's also a lot of flavor text. And some of the flavor text, I'm sure, is tongue-in-cheek because it's trying to depict to that period. So for example, it'll say, a piece that becomes lost can be purchased again during a later round which means you can regain your spouse. That's one of the um, worker placement pieces you can have in the game. If you have enough money, just as in real life, But um bump right? So there's a lot of that kind of uh, tongue-in-cheek humor throughout the game. Some of it's dark humor. Some of it's horrific. Some of it's just flat-out funny. Um, a, A lot of attention was put into putting something together as far as like, a story narrative is concerned and you could really feel that here in this game now beyond that basically what you're looking at is something that we talked about earlier this game operates and plays in a very similar manner to sleeping gods by ryan lockett and red raven games uh tc petty the third produced this game here and basically you're going to have a very simple game board that's going to have your 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 three tracks one's going to mark the rounds and the And the errors that come into play, one's going to match uh, the creepiness that you're doing creepy things. So as you do more and more creepy things, the track goes up and the people get a little bit scared of you. And then you won't be able to go to town, which is all the worker placement spots that you'll be able to go. There's also an insanity track and it gives you some obsessions, which actually will score you points, but eventually it will lead to some bad stuff that you have to kind of deal with throughout the game. Beyond that, there's a small market that you can build up your your scientific laboratory to give you additional resources throughout the game and special bonuses. But primarily what it is, it's a worker placement game in which you're collecting materials to complete contracts. Period. That's the game. Now, there's a little twist to it, which is everyone gets like this master creation. This is the kind of big creation of the game. So maybe you get a Frankenstein-esque kind of creation. That's going to be your d level which means in order to be able to complete the D level by the end of the game, which is going to score you 20 plus points in the game, you're going to have to complete an A level, two B levels, three C levels before you can complete the D level. And that also has to be in the same error that your mad scientist happens to be alive. So once the error comes to the end, everything resets. You get to tuck one of the experiments in So that allows you to kind of build up a little bit later. But basically, it's doing the same thing three times over nine rounds. The game itself, if that was it, that would be a fine, okay game. Now, this game comes with an app. And what the app does is it somewhat, it tracks a little bit of your progress. But primarily, what it's going to be doing in the game is it's going to trigger certain scenarios that are going to happen throughout. So you'll see opportunities where you put tokens on the board. And when you come across that on a track or on the board, something happens and you have to go to the app. So the app will kind of, you know, give you hints at least a little bit about what's going to happen when you hit a certain mark. Once you hit that mark, you click the app. Then the app tells you what happens. Sometimes nothing happens, which is really boring. I don't know why that was. And sometimes it leads to a certain path And then based upon your decisions and sometimes voting that you do as a group, it's going to lead down to a different, you know, branching path. It is a lot of text. It is a lot of decisions to make. We are talking about a three to four hour game. The worker placement aspect of the game is pretty simple. When you place your workers out, some things are going to happen. You're going to get materials. Sometimes you lose workers and you can reclaim them later on. But primarily the app and all the different things that come into play, like Robinson Crusoe, is really where the game kind of like builds that kind of gothic, you know, epic monster movie kind of thing. But it's also where the game bogs down terribly. If you're playing this game on your phone, as far as the app is concerned, and I have an iPhone Max, it's still incredibly hard to, you know, assure that you're going to tap the right thing. It leads to a lot of problems. Can you go back? The, the voice stuff there is challenging. It's very quick. There's so much text in this game. And a lot of times things come out of left field. So you're trying to build towards a victory. And now something has shut down in the game that really is going to put you on hold. So if you played the game straight without the app stuff, without the additional story stuff, it probably would take you maybe an hour maybe an hour and 20 minutes at tops. But when you play the app, it's going to add at least an additional two hours to the game. Yeah, it was, you know, I felt bad because I played Sleeping Gods and in that, and it's very similar because beyond the board, you get this book and, and the app will tell you how to flip the pages that will allow you to go to different spots on in the village. Very, very similar to Sleeping Gods. But Sleeping Gods was very refined and straightforward this app system is incredibly problematic and it just it just adds to the game to the point where it's no longer a game to be honest with you it's a game experience because Uh. you can't really actively play the game to win you're just really trying to have a good time and enjoy the challenges that come along the way there are things that will happen to your character that you don't really have a direct action on And, you know, again, if it's a game experience and you're trying to have fun, that's fine. Uh, You know, the Madness cards are cute. And again, all the different aspects of the game, as far as components are concerned, as far as quality artwork and everything, everything's here. But when you put together a generic worker placement game with high quality components at a $100 price tag, problems arise. If you're looking for a game, this is not a game. I don't mean any offense by it. It's more of a game experience. If this is the kind of experience that you want to have and have a fun night just joking around, laughing at the different things that pop up and just like it's not a game to win, it's a game to play, it's a game to enjoy, then I think you'll be fine with it. But for the length of this game, I think that's the real problem here. The game is just takes so very long to play and the actions that you're taking in the game Are just not that interesting to, you know, for at least for me to necessitate that amount of time at the table. I would rather play a TI4 or anything else because, again, the story's good. It's funny in some cases, it's horrifying in some cases, but it's a lot of just branching pathways. And inevitably, the finales are kind of generic. So for my father's work, it gets a dodge uh again it might be a play for you but i can't sit down and play a three four hour game on a light worker placement game that has a problematic app with an immense amount of text but again it's just a primary review there are there are three scenarios in the game i did not play all the pathways so i can only give just a general impression of one full playthrough
0: that's unfortunate yeah i know it's how many people were hyped on this it's been floating around out there for a while obviously the secondary market costs make it prohibitively yeah. expensive i was never going to pick it up but that two hours for the story elements good goodness gracious Not yeah interesting. Not interesting.
2: It, it was it was a sad experience because everything in the game is high quality and it's just it just doesn't come together tight enough and the story elements aren't built at least i don't feel that they're built well enough into the decisions you're making in the worker placement elements. Like basically, despite whatever happens in the game, you're you're doing the same actions throughout the game. You're just getting resources inevitably to fill out your, your formulas and your experiments. All right, well, a second game I want to talk about really quick is Tyrants of the Underdark, the board game. Now, this is a re-release and a combination of the previous deck building game that comes with the expansion. Now, the funny thing about this game is when they call it a board game, it's a very thin board game. And I I mean that literally and figuratively because the board itself is incredibly thin, like 1990s throwback board game. The artwork and the graphic design and the little tiny chits that come with the game that are supposed to represent your troops are like so bad, generic, cheap quality I could not believe that this game came out in you know like 2021. Like what were they thinking? It's just and even the board itself like if you if you pl- if you don't play the full player four players, you just assume that one portion of the board is off limits. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of funny cuz I'm just like wow, this would never be a game that I would think would be released today, especially with all the high quality components and everything that's out there, but small tiny Punchboard chits that are such poor quality, and the graphic design is like just a bunch of circles and lines. Now, that being said, this is an excellent deck builder. And it's kind of an excellent deck builder because it's kind of Ascension, and this is a DD version of Ascension. So this is, you know, an official version of Dungeons and Dragons from Gale Force 9. And the artwork here is fantastic. The lore here is fantastic. And again, we are playing the Underdark territory. So you play one of the Drow houses and the deck building elements, it has some of the standard cards, but then you, with the expansion here, you could decide to what two decks to smash together and that becomes your market. Now, primarily, if you ever played Ascension, it's pretty much all about money or military. So money will allow you to buy additional cards in the game Military will let you kill other units on the board or put troops out on the board. Now, the board itself, which I mentioned earlier, is an area control situation. So having your little cardboard chits in particular areas at the end of the game are going to score you points. The game comes to the end once someone gets all of their little chits out to the board or the market runs completely out. There's about 80 cards in the market. Plus, you do have those standard like money card or attack card that you can purchase at a very low rate, but it does kind of, you know, fill your deck up a little bit. Now, beyond that, you're competing against other players. So you're attacking and killing their chits. You're replacing them with yours. There are some NPC white chits on the board. So attacking those and attacking your other players will give you one point each throughout the game. As you control certain areas in the board, you'll be able to get additional buying power. And if you if you control the majority there securely, you'll also be able to score victory points throughout the game. Again, the board here is kind of hilarious and bad in every way possible, but the deck building is very good. The artwork is excellent. The cards are interesting. Beyond the troops, there are spies that come into play. So you basically have troops and spies. It's not a very diverse you know, pantheon of monsters in play and gods and demons and dragons but they're they are in the cards now what's one of the other fun things about this game too is there is an element that lets you bank cards so if you've ever played a deck builder the hardest and the most boring part of a deck builder is having those junk cards in your hand that's very hard to get a, get rid of there's an element in this game that lets you bank cards throughout the game so throughout the game you can play a card that'll let you bank mo- one or multiple cards. Those cards, when you bank them, will score you points at the end of the game. So obviously, the basic cards don't have a lot of bank power. But if you want to bank some of the big cards, that's going to score you a lot of points. The game comes to an end. You count up your bank. You count up the cards in your hand, which are typically half as valuable if they're still in your deck or hand at the time. You count up all of the different players or NPCs that you killed in the game. You count up all the areas that you control and the points there. And that's primarily it. Again, this is one of those kind of games that should not work, should be left away, and it actually works. And it's actually pretty good if you can kind of, again, if you can avoid, you know, having the board and the components here just bother you. It bothers me if I ever own this game. And again, if I find this on sale because I feel like this is one of those games that should sincerely be on sale, I would personally pay money to upgrade the board. I would get miniatures for the pieces on the board, and I think it would be a very good game. So Tyrants of the Underdark, the board game from 2022 21 from Gale Force Nine, Dungeons and Dragons gets a play for me.
0: That's funny. Yeah. I did you did you play the 2016 version? I did not. Okay, so but just looking at it now, it seems like it's the same game. Yes. But the original version had miniatures. Yes. And was $75, which at the time People were like, are you crazy? Yeah. Now, now $75 for a board game. You're like, okay, whatever. <laughs> You're like,
2: please, um, please just make it $75. do not make it more than 75
0: And it was really good. I remember playing it at a local game night. I was like, this is amazing. How much, you know, like I looked it up. I'm like, oh, that's really expensive. And they're like, yeah, yeah nobody knows about this game because they way overpriced it. Yes. So $50 bucks for this, you take out the miniatures, but you add in the expansion. I think that's a great idea.
2: Yeah, I think both of them have the same board and the same setup. I think the only difference is the miniatures versus the little cardboard chits.
0: Yeah. Which I mean it's miniature they were nice. I remember them being nice, but mm-hmm. if it's a $50 difference, please, I will take the cardboard all day.
2: Yeah, I think I think again it was based on the idea like you said it was that many years ago versus now. Yeah. So again, I think the game is good enough that I would pay the extra money for the miniatures just because the chits are such small poor quality that it almost it kind of offended me to play it. I was just like <laughs> I mean I'm I'm really talking little tiny circles. You know that were just yeah. again it's it like you said other than the miniatures it's 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 basically the same game but it has the expansion included there.
0: Yeah. Yeah, they do look terrible.
2: Mm-hmm. So. <laughs> All right, everyone. So that's all the games that are hitting our table this week. Let's get on to our feature review. Our feature review this week, of course, is one of the most important elements of any board game, and that's the rulebook. Not the little miniatures, not the little chits. It's the rulebook. So we wanted to take this special episode to talk more about these fantastic rulebooks that make the games playable and makes the games teachable. So, Anthony, I will leave it all up to you talking about these wonderful rulebooks.
0: Yeah, no, these are fantastic. Um, and thank you to our lovely listeners and, and readers and everybody who kind of helped us put this list together. Um, because rule books are funny. When you're reading them, you're like, wow, this is great. Or, wow, this is terrible. But when you go to think back on which rule books really stand out, unless they were particularly bad or particularly good, it is hard to kind of pull them out. So mm. thanks to everybody who helped here. Um, <clears throat> first up, at number 10, we have... And I mentioned before, he's on the best list and he's on the worst list. Vlada (laughs) Shavatel's Dungeon Pets. So there's a lot of recommendations for Vlada's rule books. Space Alert seems to be a very popular one. Uh, It's not a game that I think either of us have played, though. So it's not one we could speak to. Uh, But Dungeon Pets have played, have read the rules, have learned from the rules. And it has that special Vlada Shavatel charm it's funny, it's engaging, the examples uh, do a good job of showing the game, but also capturing the tone of the game, which I think is really important in the rules, like capturing the tone of what you're doing. Like, it not, you know, you don't want it to be stereo instructions, but you want it to be s- clear and direct enough to fully understand the game and have a little bit of character to it. Not too much character or you can't find the rules, but enough. Right. So it's fun. It's engaging. It's interesting. And Dungeon Pets with a 20 page rule book had a lot of lifting to do, but has a good balance of examples, has a good balance of like clarifying text within the breakdown. It uses the bolding effectively. Um, it doesn't bold like every other word so that you can't actually use it to scan for things. You can scan through the text and find the information that you need um, effectively. There's enough illustrations to show you what you're looking at when it's describing something, but not so many that you don't. That it's overwhelming. Um, it's a solid rule book, and you can reference things fairly easily because it's broken down by phase uh, with a nice appendix at the end. So that is number 10. A lot Dungeon Pets. Next up at number nine is uh, a game I know that you've played, Chris Underwater Cities.
2: I may have played that before.
0: You may have.
2: You may have a little <laughs> bit. Uh,
0: so this is from Vladimir Suchi, um, and this is. We didn't learn the rules ourselves. Somebody else was reading this when we played it at PAX. And, you know, they seemed frustrated. So at first I'm like, oh, maybe the rules aren't that good. But then when I got it home, I got my own copy and read through them. I'm like, it's a great rule book. It's very direct. It's very clear. You know, you get the nested layout of information. You go from setup to order of play to gameplay to specific actions and then zoom back out again to the elements that are most important. There are good illustrations, again, throughout. We have things broken out into the yellow boxes that are important for specific mechanics that are not part of the course of play. The iconography is printed in the rulebook. You have to do that. If you're going to reference a thing, you got to show me the icons in the rulebook so I know what I'm talking about with a reference easily visible (laughs) in those pages. I shouldn't have to reference a separate piece of paper or like 10 pages later to find out what you're talking about. Um, It has maps and illustrations of the full board. That's one of my pet peeves in a rulebook book is when it zooms in so close, or it only shows a specific scenario with that rule, and you're like, okay, but how does it apply for the other fifteen ways this might happen? Underwater Cities covers that, you know, and it can't cover every card, but it it does a fairly decent job. So, uh, Underwater Cities at number nine. Uh, number eight, I'm gonna. I know some people don't like these, but I love it. I love games that do this. Legends of Andor as well as The Adventures of Robin Hood, both from Michael Menzel, these are learn-as-you-play games. So in Legends of Andor, you have scenarios. The first scenario is the the learn-the-rules scenario, and they're just cards. You put the card out, it tells you what to do, you go through it, you take the actions, and you move forward. So you're playing the game immediately. I love that. Uh, Adventures of Robin Hood does the same thing, but it's got the book. So you just start reading the book. You start on page one, you read through it, it tells you what to do, it tells you where to go, it tells you when to do it. This was a godsend because when I'm playing a game with my kids, the first thing that they ask me is how long is it going to take to get started? And I'm like, I don't know. I have to go over the rules real quick. And every 30 seconds, are you done yet? Have you gone through the rules yet? (laughs) Right. Um, The faster you can read the rules to a children's family game, the better. And uh, the adventures of Robin hood has this big, amazing, just complex book for a fairly simple game. Everything is there. Everything is visible. You can just play it immediately, right out of the box, which I wish every game was capable of doing that. I know they're not, but I wish they were because then my kids would stop pestering me. Um, <laughs> uh, number seven. Uh, this is another double here because we have basically Mac Gertz. His rules tend to be you know, two to four pages, fairly straightforward. And part of that is the games, the design of the games, themselves is fairly straightforward concordia is probably the best example right we have a very quick like five paragraph game overview a run through of each of the personality cards and what they do and then of course we have the quick game structure play sheet which is like two pages um, you can get through the rules to concordia in less than 10 minutes you can find the information you need when playing the game pretty much instantly because all the cards are broken down all the information you need for an action is on that card section. So if you need to remember how the architect works, you look up the architect section on page two, and you you figure it out. Move colonists, build houses. And there's a nice example there. Um, another one of his that I really like is Antique A2. It's another one with a six-page rulebook, um, broken down very similarly. Overview of game flow, goal of the game, and then the actions that you take. Um, it also has a nice like opening strategy, which I always really appreciate, is when they walk you through. like here are some things to consider as you start the game. And just just to give you something to think about, something to start with, which sometimes with a complex game, you don't know where to start. So it's nice to be able to tell people where to start. Uh, next up, we have Century Spice Road. Uh, so getting into a little bit lighter games here. But not all light games have short rulebooks. Uh, you look at Living Forest, which just won um, the Kenner Spiel. That game has a 17-page rulebook. Ostensibly, it's a f- relatively light game. I've played it with my children, but I would not give them the rulebook to learn. Century Spice Road has a single piece of paper, two-sided. That's it. Uh, so you can the you go through the setup on page one, you go through the basics of taking a turn, and then there's one page of rules after that that talks about upgrading cards, trading cards, acquiring, and resting. That's it. That's all you need to know. And you can start the game and you don't need additional references. There's no text on the cards. The game is very, very simple, but the rules don't overcomplicate that simplicity, which I know you're thinking right now, well, the game's simple. Of course the rules are simple. You would think so, but not all rules follow that. Uh, Some of them somehow find a way to make simple games overly complicated. All right. uh, Next up at number five, we have the great Vital Lacerda, I chose the Gallerist um, to drop in here, but honestly, you could take any of his games. These are masterclasses in taking very, very complex games. We're talking 4.2 weight and higher and making them digestible, you know, and you couldn't drop this in front of somebody who'd never played a strategy board game before, but you could absolutely drop it in front of somebody who's played other heavy games and they could read the rules and then play it. I've done that multiple times with his games. Um, the Gallerist is one of my favorites because this is a game that, in my opinion, when you have this rulebook with you, you can teach in about 10 to 15 minutes. Uh, and that, again, it's a 20-page rulebook, and it's a 4.27-weight game, but it breaks everything down just very seamlessly, very clearly. Uh, the order I always appreciate the order in which Lacerda does it too. You get an overview of the game. We then kind of jump And we get gameplay and end of game breakdowns, right? We always know early what the end of the game looks like before we get into the actions, so you know what you're working towards. Um, So you have that information in your head as you get started. Um, It can make referencing it a little bit complicated if you've never played a Lacerda game before. You're looking for end of game stuff, and it's on page four or five. But uh, it, it really works really well in this case. Again, another case of where each key piece of vocabulary is bolded uh, and they they use two or three colors not 11 colors <laughs> like the z-man rule books not in here because those 14 colors they use to highlight all the different wording in there not a fan um, but eagle griffin games and their rule books and specifically for lacerda it's clear it's consistent it's visually compelling and it's easy to find the information that you need which for a very complex game is absolutely crucial and you can see everything another big sin of a rulebook, not showing you the information that they're talking about. You have to see what it looks like in the rulebook before you can do it physically. Uh, So the gallerist, top of the list, uh, Lisboa, right up there as well, just for how complex and how many systems are in that game and being able to get through the rulebook, all 27 pages of it. Uh, Next up, uh, another designer with some pretty big, heavy games that managed to get broken down pretty effectively. Uh, We have Fields of Arl, specifically, and kind of a runner-up to that, A Feast for Odin. Um, Uwe Rosenberg, just generally. And Uwe's come a long way because his early games, specifically like the first edition of Agricola, that rulebook was kind of hard to get through. It was not well laid out. The information was not clearly presented. And so you could easily get lost in there. But somewhere around the time Fields of Arl came out in 2014, closely followed by A Feast for Odin. And I don't know if like someone new came in to kind of help lay these out or what it is, but um, it, it does a much better job of giving you a sense of what you're supposed to be doing up front, like the goal of the game, the baselines of the game, like all the information you need to know before you dive into the the breakdown. And I think part of that might just be that these two games have worker placement boards with dozens of locations, Right big, giant sandbox games. If you don't make it clear how the game works and what the structure of the game is, and then you're like, and here's all your actions. People are going to be like, for what? To what end? Why am I taking these actions? Like the rules would make the game impenetrable. So it really has to be clear what the goal of the game is, what the work phase entails, um, and then how the season structure, specifically in Fields of RL, works before you get to any of the actions. Like, that has to come pretty much at the end, right? After you're loading the vehicles, after each of the different types of resources. Action spaces and fields of arl doesn't start until page 12. Um, and I think in earlier worker placement games, that might have started on page 5. And then you'd go through all the other stuff at the end and be like, OK, but why am I doing any of this, <laughs> right? Um, and they really kind of mastered that layout, which I think is important. Uh, next up, in number 3. Uh, we we chose Memoir 44 as kind of the pinnacle representation of Days of Wonder. But Days of Wonder, in general, has always been really, really good with their rulebooks. Um, that's another company that has always been really, really good at breaking things down into just a small number of pages. Uh, one of my favorite games of theirs is Quadropolis. It's a two-page rulebook. Ticket to Ride, two and a half pages. You know, And these are games, again, not that complicated. But you have to like present it in such a way that you're not overcomplicating it and you're not leaving anything out. Right. And Memoir 44, based on the command and color system, you could easily overcomplicate that. But you don't need to, because a lot of the rules of the game are covered on the cards themselves. Right. So you just need to give people the information that is required to tackle the game. So we have a 17-page rulebook. It's much longer than some of their other rule books, but it uses the same kind of structure in in addressing the information that you need like you get core concepts up front a breakdown of the game turn and then delving deeper into what those game turns look like specifically movement in battle with very specific numbered examples for each possible option we don't skip any right we got battle range infantry battle range armor battle range artillery they show us what all of that looks like they also have images on the side for quick reference you can see the picture of. The uh, the unit, like the plastic piece, is in the margin on the side. So you can quickly just look through. I'm like I'm looking for infantry. There's infantry. That's the section I need. Um, it does a really good job of breaking that down and making the book scannable, making it quick and easy to look for. You don't need to read giant chunks of text to find a quick rules reference. You can find it just by finding the icon you need and then skimming over some bullet points. So for as complex of a game as it is, one of the more complex games that Days of Wonder has released... Very accessible rules. Uh, Number two, uh, we talked about this earlier, pandemic. And I think just the fact that we call it a game system, right, speaks to the rules, that they're so elegant and simple and can be repurposed and reworked in so many different ways that they had to have been very solid from the start. And you know, Matt Leacock has given speeches about this. He's written articles about this, like how he developed these rules and tweaked them and adjusted them over... The course of several years, and it just works. It's very simple. It's it's very straightforward. The rulebook walks you through the basics in a fairly straightforward manner. Um, you can pick up the rulebook for this game, learn it, and start playing it. You know, in about fifteen minutes. And I've given it to students and just said, "Figure it out and go play," and they did. And it's not the simplest game in the world. It's not you know, it's not Century Spice Road. It's not a Days of Wonder game. It has a little bit more heft to it, and yet it still works seamlessly. Um, And you can layer in other rules, and they still make sense as well, seamlessly. So Pandemic has been kind of a gold standard for this type of cooperative gaming for, well, since 2008 when it came out. And uh, the rule book is a testament to that. All right. And then number one on the list, and this was by far the most recommended one when I asked people uh, best rule book and when I looked around to see what people thought best rule book and the first thing that popped into my head so I was like great this is what we're doing because it's validated is uh dominant species from Chad Jensen and GMT games GMT games in general has always done a fantastic job with their rules right these are complex games with a lot going on and they break them down in a very simple direct approach that works um, it's numbered there's always an index You can find things based on reference points. So three point one point one, right? That's what you're looking for. Uh, It's very easy to find in the rulebook. Um, You don't have to like dig around and look for a paragraph that might reference what you're looking, what you're what you're trying to talk about. Unlike some other GMT rulebooks, we get specific visual representations of the elements that we're looking at. Um, You know, we get less of the numbered breakdown in this game than we do in some of their other games, but we do get breakdowns by specific actions. Initiative, adaptation, regression, abundance, all those concepts are broken down clearly with very clear examples. Um, it's just a very well-written, very accessible, easy-to-use rule book with references at the end for all of the key information that you'll need. And uh, Dominant Species Marine, equally as good. A bit shorter. It's a shorter game. This one's 20 pages. Marine, I think, is 16. Uh, but yeah, Dominant Species... Just remains for such a complex game that takes four or five hours to be able to read the rule book in 15, 20 minutes and really know what you need to do and teach this game is amazing.
2: Yeah, and seemingly it's one of the crunchiest, heavy, complicated esoteric games out there in the world. And somehow you can play it based on its rule book, which is amazing. It it really is it really does everything that, it, that a great rule book needs to do. So certainly deserves to be on this list, especially as number one. All right, everyone. So that's everything for this week until next time. This is Chris.
0: Hey, and this is Anthony.
2: And we'll save you all. i see you at the table. Take care, everyone. Bye. See ya.